everybody, it is Friday, February 22nd, 2019, and you are listening to the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Ezedike, and I'm here to talk to you about car news, car culture, and car whatever. Uh, yo, it seems like spring is nearly here. I saw a Dodge Demon sitting outside of my doctor's office today. No shadow. It's gotta be like a month out, right? Uh, I know the weather touched 40 degrees today. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited to feel like spring is nearly here. Nevertheless, we do have some news, culture, and whatever to talk about today. In the news segment, uh, the big news I think this week is the Consumer Reports brand rankings have been released. Uh, lots of stuff to take in about where brands have landed, where brands, brands have dropped to, uh, and really whether or not the Consumer Reports rankings mean anything at all. Of course, they probably do because we're talking about it here. Uh, Also want to talk a bit about the GM plant shutdown. Uh, One of the plants that we thought was shutting down might not be in the immediate future. Uh, What that means for the specific vehicles that are made there. uh, What that might mean for these types of cars in the GM lineup going forward. Uh, There's some interesting stuff to kind of take from this announcement. In the car culture segment, I want to talk about leasing and more specifically EV leasing. Uh, Tesla has made an announcement after a leak came out that they are planning to move the Model 3 to leasing. There's some pretty big implications with what that's going to do for that car company uh, and really EVs on the whole. And then last up, because it's kind of connected to the culture segment talking about EV leasing, a car that was primarily leased uh, when it was for sale, uh, that is the Chevrolet Spark EV. Uh, It was on sale for a very short amount of time. It was a uh, compliance car in many states on the west and east coast of the United States. Uh, Talk about what it is, what it does why it is might maybe an EV worth looking into if you're looking for a cheap and affordable uh, environmentally friendly car. Um, I saw one for the first time in a long time the other day and uh, I came away pretty impressed. So some thoughts about that vehicle. And then last up, uh, the part where I remind you that uh, this podcast is available for free on a wide variety of podcasting platforms, including Spotify, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, and so much more. So if you're listening, thank you so much. I hope you hit that subscribe button. Uh, We've just hit over 5,000 plays collectively on all the episodes of the Salvage Title podcast. Uh, That is pretty incredible. So thank you for listening to this uh, when you do. Uh, If you get a chance, uh, make sure that you uh, give us a rating. If you are on a service where they uh, ask for ratings of the podcast, it helps us get seen by more and more people. Uh, So if you've ever done that, thank you for doing that as well. And in other news, guys, uh, we do multiple different versions of this podcast. Uh, Early in the week, usually Monday or Tuesday, we drop an episode called The Scrap Stories, where I talk about something of general interest to me. This week, we talked about uh, the new GMC Acadia AT4 and the idea of a tough crossover off-roading. There's some interesting things done there, and it's a very interesting thing that's being done by GM with this model. So if you're curious at all, take a listen to that. Uh, We also do the Salvage Title Car Buyer's Guide, where we break down a segment of vehicles into what I think are the three or four best options in a segment. Uh, This most recent one we did was on two-row crossovers, uh, two-row mid-size crossovers to be more specific. So if you're in the market for a larger crossover, but you don't want that big family vehicle, uh, give it a listen. Maybe there'll be some interesting uh, insight for you in that part of the segment. 
But anyway, guys, uh, it's the end of the intro. This is where I say, hang on just a moment. We're going to do a bump. There might be an ad in there. So uh, check back in just one moment and we'll talk about the big news stories this week. So the big news this week is, of course, Consumer Reports has released their 2019 brand rankings uh, for new cars and trucks. And they've also specified some specific models, which we can get into and in maybe in a later episode, uh, talking about uh, what they think is the best and the worst new cars and trucks to buy in 2019. Now, if you're not familiar at all with Consumer Reports, uh, Consumer Reports is a massive publication here in North America uh, and really specifically in the United States. Uh, Consumer Reports is a consumer advocacy group uh, that goes out and purchases new cars, trucks, microwaves, ovens, tablets, telephones, so much more, and they get data on what they experience with these products and combine it with feedback from their readers and from their members uh, to kind of get an idea of whether or not people should or should not buy particular products out in the world. Now, of course, you say, wow, I know how ranking systems work and they're not super great. And you are partially correct on that. Consumer Reports does tend to cater to a much older crowd, uh, typically a crowd who are who is much more careful with their money. Um, and as such, these people are likely to be much more specific in what kind of issues they have problems with, you know, whether it's a car, whether it's a microwave or anything else. And that really means that their sample size uh, is that they're going to be reporting extremely positive or extremely negative issues with these vehicles. And that will uh, pull the ranking any which way. Now, what is nice about Consumer Reports is they do balance that situation out with their own scores uh, so that they can kind of take into consideration where the market is at and really get an overall opinion of how good or bad something is. With these cars and trucks, they consider four separate things uh, when coming up with an overall ranking for a brand. First up is perceived reliability. Uh, these are going to be issues that are marked by consumer reports in the time that they own a vehicle, in addition to reports coming from customers who own the vehicle specifically. So one thing that does skew that score in particular is going to be something like infotainment systems in cars, uh, cars that are really tech heavy and really forward thinking, I would make an argument to say. Uh, tend to get scored pretty low when it comes to perceived reliability. Um, Honda in particular suffered greatly in this situation with their infotainment system, uh, which I think is somewhat disappointing. Um, there's many other aspects to like things like push button shifters that had some impacts on some vehicles as well. Um, overall, you know, whether or not that is the best ranking to kind of go with, it does take into consideration actual problems and that's where brands like Land Rover, uh, Jaguar really start to suffer is with you know actual dependability issues. Consumer Reports also pulls consumer satisfaction uh, rankings on these cars. Uh, that's going to be whether or not you are happy with your purchase, whether or not you would recommend this purchase to other people, whether or not you yourself would make this purchase again in the next few years. And that has some interesting things going on with it as well. Uh, something like the Jeep Compass is a 
specific vehicle that scored quite low in this segment. Uh, that vehicle uh, has a thing where, you know, the transmission shifts really roughly with that nine-speed automatic. It's not necessarily a reliability issue, um, but customers don't like it, and it really affects the performance of the vehicle. And in the end, that drops the score for that vehicle much, much lower. And in the end, makes it a not recommended purchase from Consumer Reports. Um, you know, that can really go a lot of different ways too. If you're an older person, you know, you might not be as satisfied with all these touch screens on the dashboard, even though that's what young people are more interested in. Uh, there's a lot of different ways that score can be affected, but in general, you know, it's gonna be whether or not you're happy with the car once you've had it, once you've owned it, once you've driven it around. Um, and that can hold some weight for a lot of folks. Uh, Consumer Reports also factors in their road test of the road tests of the vehicles that they own. Uh, that's going to be done on their private track uh, where they test a vehicle in a wide variety of ways. And also when they have it out on the street, taking notes from their different testers uh, who are living with it day to day. And then last up, the last fourth option there is going to be the numbers of vehicles uh, that were released in a given year or are tested throughout the year and where those vehicles have been ranked. Uh, so let's say you are a brand like Genesis is a good one. We'll talk about their ranking here in a second. They only have a handful of vehicles out in the market. I believe it's three and two of their three vehicles has a recommendation on it and one does not. And that significantly can affect their overall performance in this ranking where, uh, you know, if you only got a handful of cars that are really, really good, but one is kind of bad, you're going to look much better versus somebody like Chevrolet, where maybe you're split more 50-50 on what's good and what's bad. Uh, that's going to drop your ranking quite a bit. So that's kind of how the Consumer Reports rankings work. And they change every single year um, based on, you know, what models were out the year before, whether or not there are new cars, what kind of significant changes happen to brands. Uh, and, you know, brands and automakers really care about this an awful lot. I've talked about Honda quite a bit uh, in this scenario. Uh, Honda has been playing catch up with Consumer Reports for years in this situation. Uh, most specifically, Honda, you know, they had a Civic come out a few years ago. I think it was the 2012 model uh, got just trashed in the Consumer Reports rankings uh, for so many different problems that not just Consumer Reports had with the car, but customers have with the car. And then every single year up until the new 2016 model uh, that's now the current Honda Civic came out, uh, they were updating the car to address these issues every single year. And there were tweaks to the car every single model year that made it just a little bit different. And it goes to show that Honda was very committed to maintaining a recommended rating from Consumer Reports. Uh, but in the end, you know, that's kind of been all over the board, especially with their new cars that are out right now. Um, and I think there are a lot of brands that are willing to play ball with this as a thing. And there are others that are not. Uh, so, you know, it holds weight, but it doesn't hold weight for or for everybody. And that can really dramatically affect the way uh, cars are designed and engineered going forward. So uh, what are the top cars this year? Well, uh, looks like Subaru uh, has been ranked number one overall for branding. Uh, their road test scores in particular scored very high. Um, but really, in general, all of their stuff was rated quite well. Uh, 
vehicles like the new Subaru Ascent, uh, the updated Forester, uh, you know, the Outback, and so much more did quite well. The only vehicle in their lineup not recommended is the Subaru WRX, unsurprisingly. Um, but nevertheless, you know, they're a brand that has really jumped up quite a bit in the past few years. And really, you know, I have to say, at least in a personal opinion moment, I think a lot of that has to do with Subaru knowing who to market to. And right now it is older men and women. When I say older men and women, I mean people in their late 30s and early 40s who have the money to buy these vehicles, who believe that all-wheel drive is a perceived bonus in owning these cars and trucks. Uh, that is going to be the most important thing for them, and as such, they're going to rank these vehicles quite well. Uh, as much as I find Subarus particularly boring in some aspects, you know, they are very safe. They're very capable vehicles. Uh, they do look pretty all right. They seem to be built rather well down there in Indiana. Um, so, eh, you know, whatever. Uh, rank number two is Genesis. Like I said, two out of their three cars are recommended. That's going to really inflate your score. Um, owner sadness owner satisfaction has been particularly high, as are the road test scores. Um, you know, when you've got perceived value as a brand and the build quality is quite good, that's going to do really well for you. Porsche came in in number three. Porsche's kind of been dancing around the top five the past few years, um, really relying on owner satisfaction, road test scores. Uh, they build excellent sports cars. Nobody's doubting that. Uh, their crossovers and SUVs are ranked quite well too, uh, but it's interesting that the owner satisfaction and road test scores can inflate things so much when the reliability aspect of it is good, but not exactly great. Um, so we'll kind of see how that brand kind of performs overall. Uh, Audi finished fourth in this ranking, really inflated by their road test scores. Everything else is pretty good, but again, I go long-term reliability and dependability on this brand isn't exactly super great, uh, and I can't believe that it's ranked that high, but, you know, people who buy Audis really like their cars and they're likely to stick with the brand regardless of their experience, and, you know, that means something. And then finally, at number five, Lexus, the former reigning world champion for years and years and years and years and years on end. Uh, they're in at fifth. Just good marks across the board uh, on their cars and trucks. Uh, you know, there's really not too much to be said. Now, what is interesting with Lexus is, if I remember correctly, their owner satisfaction score was a little bit lower than what it was before. And that does make me wonder if the new modernizations that have been going on with their cars, specifically in terms of infotainment, uh, have any impact on that score. Uh, I don't have a subscription to Consumer Reports to read the finer details on each brand, but uh, it, it would be interesting to know if that's the problem area that docked them a bit. Now, in the bottom five, we have Jeep, uh, really dinged by reliability scores overall. Uh, their drive scores were quite high across the board, but the reliability is not great. So, uh, you know, if you're out there looking at Jeeps, always keep that in mind. Uh, FCA, you know, they really don't do particularly well when it comes to reliability and dependability rankings. Uh, so this isn't exactly a huge surprise here. Mitsubishi was the next lowest, uh, citing owner satisfaction and road test scores being really low. I think cars like the Mitsubishi Eclipse Cross would have some effect on that. Their infotainment system isn't exactly the most intuitive one out there, uh, despite Mitsubishi's changes to make it otherwise. Uh, cars like the Mitsubishi Mirage have ranked quite well 
are poorly in the past due to harsh rides, flat seats, so on and so forth. But when you're paying, you know, $12,000 for a car, I don't really know what you're going to expect. So unsurprisingly, Mitsubishi is near the bottom. Uh, Land Rover and Jaguar are next, reliability being their bid big red flags on their vehicles. Uh, they're British automakers, so I don't know what other or what else people are expecting in this regard. Uh, Land Rover, Jaguar, it's never been great. It's as bad as it ever was. Uh, this isn't a huge surprise here. Um, fuel economy, I know, was one thing that got dinged on Land Rover quite a bit. Uh, again, why are you surprised? These are off-road vehicles uh, that are based on these heavy-duty chassis. Uh, it's going to be happening that way. It's really strange that, that people get so upset about it. And then at the very bottom of all the rankings uh, is Fiat uh, for really bad just about everything. Bad road tests, bad re reliability, bad owner satisfaction. Um, I'm kind of surprised actually that the uh, 124 Spider, the Fiat 124 Spider, didn't boost those rankings a little bit. Uh, it being built by Mazda in Japan using Fiat engines, uh, you know, I would think that would do quite well, but the Fiat 500L was cited as a huge black mark for the brand overall. Um, yeah, things aren't good. And when you only have three cars, again, and they're all three of them are not ranked particularly high, that's really going to have a huge impact on your score overall. Uh, some notable brands that kind of floated around thing, uh, Toyota was ranked number nine. Uh, they just had okay scores across the board. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see if those scores get affected overall with the new Corolla coming out later this year, uh, and especially the new Corolla Hybrid. The new Prius all-wheel drive E, or E all-wheel drive, however that ranking goes inside of their naming scheme. Uh, interested to see how that will affect their score as well uh, going into 2020. Honda typically a highly rated brand, fell down to 13th. Uh, reliability is their major call out. And if I remember correctly from the Consumer Reports rankings on specific models, uh, it's the tech stuff that really dings them quite a bit. Uh, the Honda Odyssey and Insight both got avoid rankings, which is really strange to me. Uh, so I don't know why it's going like that when you know, critics overall really like these vehicles quite a bit. Uh, GM really fell quite a bit. Uh, Buick, Chevrolet, GMC, and Cadillac were ranked 18th, 24th, 27th, and 26th respectively. Reliability and uh, consumer satisfaction really dinged a lot of their vehicles. Um, and I think personally uh, that has a lot to do with their shoddy build quality as of late. Interior materials are not good. Uh, fitment is not great. And, you know, the new design on these new pickup trucks isn't all that exciting either. And it's going to have a dramatic effect on the overall ranking of these cars going forward. So GM has their work cut out for them. And then last up, one of the biggest collapses in the list this year was Tesla. Tesla fell till 19th, uh, falling 11 places overall for the brand. Um, really a lot of issues with the Model 3 and the Model S uh, in terms of quality and dependability. Tesla is known for not having particularly great uh, overall reliability, so I'm not exactly surprised there. Um, but yeah, you know, Consumer Reports, I really do appreciate a lot of what they do. I really do appreciate a lot of what they have to say about cars and trucks. It is an interesting thing to take into consideration when you're shopping. But again, I have to reiterate, a lot of their readers are older. A lot of their readers are a little more 
persnickety about what is good or bad about a car or truck. And I think the main thing you have to say when you're shopping for a new car or truck is that you need to go out and actually check it out yourself, see if you like it or not, and then determine if maybe these reliability rankings, uh, dependability rankings, have any impact on what your purchase is going to be. It seems pretty clear to me, at least based on these bottom trim brands, uh, specifically Jeep, Nobody cares when they buy that particular car or truck. They know what they're getting into. They know it's not going to be super great. Um, but Jeep has this cult of people who love their cars uh, that are going to buy them no matter what. Same thing with Land Rover. Um, I think it's a cult thing and a status thing. So people are going to be willing to deal with poor reliability rankings uh, just to get the car to show off the image that they want to show off. Um yeah, I don't know. Is, is there anything that surprises you on the Consumer Reports rankings? Let me know here on Anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash Y-S-S-M-A-N. I look forward to hearing from you. In other news, and kind of sort of an update to a story we talked about a few weeks back, uh, General Motors has announced that the Hamtramck assembly plant just outside of Detroit will be staying open until early 2020. Uh, now, the news, of course, from back a while ago uh, was that General Motors was announcing that multiple plants, both in the United States and Canada, were being shut down uh, due to a wide variety of factors. Uh, GM had said that high prices associated with the Chinese import tariffs, uh, changes in market uh, sales, different kinds of investments that they did or did not want to make all kind of came to a head and they were laying off all of these people and closing these plants down permanently. This, of course, flew in the face of the fact that GM got a huge tax cut from the Trump administration this past year, and those hundreds of millions of dollars were supposed to be reinvested in the company, reinvested in their workers to make sure that people are staying at work here in the United States. Uh, the truth of the matter is that GM was using that money to purchase back shares of their company and really just pocket the cash overall. And as much as they had a positive growth year in terms of cash flow, uh, things still don't exactly look good for the company. Uh, so this news that Hamtramck is staying open has some positive and negative uh, things going on with it. Now, the Buick LaCrosse, the Chevrolet Volt, uh, those vehicles did get the permanent axe. The production on those vehicles actually stopped the day after Valentine's Day in 2019. Uh, as much as I am sad to see the Volt go, I'm excited to see what's going to be new and replace it. Uh, LaCrosse, you know was a very good car, but it was largely a non-starter for a lot of people. With all that in mind, the cars that are being saved by Hamtramck staying open uh, for the moment is the Cadillac CT6 and the Chevrolet Impala. Now, the CT6 is a particularly interesting one to me because it is a vehicle that has been reviewed extremely well by automotive outlets all across North America. Uh, these cars are, you know, known to be on a very well-designed chassis, the Omega chassis. They're using powertrains that are extremely well-designed and are arguably on the cutting edge for GM, uh, up to and including the new Blackwing twin-turbocharged V8 uh, that'll be debuting in the CT6V, which has already sold out for 2019. They were only planning on building 276 units this year. Uh, they were gone in a matter of minutes. Uh, and Cadillac is really looking like they're going, oh shit, maybe the CT6 is actually a good car that we need to save. Uh, GM had said in their announcement that 
they didn't exactly feel that the CT6 that is being built in China would be up to standards here in North America for us, not exactly from in terms of reliability and dependability, but more that a, such a premium American car uh, shouldn't be built in China and sold here. Like, it's got some kind of stigma that goes against that, and to some extent that's probably true, especially when it's a premium flagship vehicle for such a high-class American brand. Uh, I would love to see more of the CT6 going forward. I think it's going to be a car that will be saved in the long run uh, due to whether or not sales are good or not. I think it's just it, it's the kind of icon thing that GM wants to have in the Cadillac portfolio at this point in time. And really, to kind of extend that a little bit further, GM doesn't really have a plant to build the... Uh, the Omega chassis cars anywhere. Uh, as far as we know, it is the only Omega chassis car uh, being built by GM at the moment. I'm sure that there will be an announcement later on down the line that they're going to do more with it. Uh, but for such an expensive development uh, on this new chassis, they've got to do something with it. And uh, it looks like for now, the car will continue to be, or continue to be built in Detroit uh, to recuperate some of those costs. Now, the Impala, on the other hand, is a little bit more of an interesting thing. Uh, Chevrolet has been selling hundreds of thousands of these cars every single year, uh, largely to fleets, but also to private folks, too. Uh, the Impala has kind of been a subtle hit among uh, reviewers and critics and other things, uh, known for being actually a surprisingly well-dampened and handling vehicle and getting some pretty decent fuel economy numbers when equipped with the four-cylinder engine. Now, when they announced that they were getting rid of the Impala, I was a little bit disappointed because it's the death of the classic American full-size sedan. I've always had a soft spot in my heart for these big cars because they are so quintessentially American. Uh, they're designed to go out on the highway and sit at 80 miles an hour for hours and hours on end as you cover hundreds and hundreds of miles of distance. And I really do hope to some extent that maybe, perhaps, someway, somehow, uh, Chevrolet is looking to save the Impala. I think having a big car in the lineup is, you know, it would be a huge loss for the company. As much as, you know, sedans are not doing as well compared to crossovers and SUVs, I think there's got to be a point somewhere in that brand where they go, hey, we do need a big car, we do need a family sedan of some kind, and maybe it's some kind of middle ground vehicle between the Malibu and the Impala, or maybe it's something that's flexible that can be bigger or shorter. Um, but extending the, car, the life of the car for another year, I think, is a pretty big win for a lot of people. And at least for me, as a fan of the Impala, as it sits right now, uh, I'm excited to see it stick around for one more year. Uh, so kudos to GM for doing this, for the UAW, for fighting for this. Um, I, we got a lot of extra work cut out for us to keep these other plants open. Um, hopefully a lot of these people get to keep their jobs for the considerable future past this 2020 deadline. Um, it's important to me as somebody who lives in Michigan, uh, to see that there are still cars being made in Detroit. Um, and that would be a great thing. So we'll see what comes out of this. I'm sure updates will be to follow. So stick to this channel. I hate saying that because it's kind of weird uh, to hear more about what's going on uh, with this uh, Hamtramck production plant. So in the car culture segment, I wanted to talk a little bit about leasing and more specifically leasing that's going on with Tesla. Uh, now, Tesla is apparently looking to 
extend leasing options to the Model 3 here in the near future to hopefully, from their perspective, increase demand for the vehicle and continue to grow sales for the vehicle as we move on into 2019 and 2020. Uh, now, whether or not you think leasing is a smart option for you as a buyer really is kind of determined on what kind of perspective you have on this as a as an idea. Um, if you're unaware, the basic, most basic rundown of leasing is that you are paying for the anticipated depreciation of the vehicle uh, that you're buying uh, in the time that you agree to own it. So, you know, if you're buying a $20,000 car and GM or Ford or whomever you're leasing it from thinks the car is only going to be worth uh, $12,000 at the end of your lease term, the payments in total that you're making on the car is only going to be $8,000 worth of payments. That means that your payment per month is going to be much, much lower than buying the car outright, uh, but you're also not owning the car at any point in this situation. Uh, it's owned by a bank or by the car company, and really it's just on loan to you. And once that lease term is up, you either turn the car in and repeat the process over again, or you have you have the option to buy the vehicle for that $12,000 that they think it's worth, whether or not the car is actually worth $12,000 or not. What makes leasing kind of difficult to do is that these car makers are basically running a math equation to see what they think this car is going to be worth at the end of the lease terms. Uh, a lot of people who lease American cars in particular uh, think they're going in and getting a super great deal, um, but by the time their lease is up, they find out that their car is significantly undervalued, and if they're not guaranteeing the value of the vehicle in the situation, you can end up losing a lot of money in that process. A lot of brands like luxury brands really depend on leasing to make sure that there are cars on their used car lot. Uh, CPO programs do a lot for companies like Lexus and BMW, and they get a lot of their CPO vehicles uh, from these lessees because lessees tend to take better care of their vehicles because uh, when they don't own it and the manufacturer is uh, extending that warranty to the main number of years that you're going to be owning it on a lease, uh, it works out a lot in your favor. You know, outside of the consumables like gasoline, oil, tires, wiper blades, uh, anything goes wrong with your car, that automaker will typically cover the repairs for it, which can be a pretty good deal. But you know, things kind of ebb and flow. People like actually owning their vehicles. People think it's the only way to buy a car or to have a new car. Really, it's a matter of what you're comfortable with. There's ways to do it where you can make money on the situation. There's ways that you can really get fleeced. Uh, and in the end, you know, it's all a matter of what you're willing to deal with. So with all that in mind, Tesla, they want to start leasing the Model 3. Tesla thinks it's really going to increase demand on the car. They think it's really going to make it popular here in the U.S. and Canada and all around the world where it's offered. And a lot of people are raising some red flags on it and some people are really excited. Uh, the investment community doesn't exactly like the idea of Tesla doing this in every aspect because that means that Tesla is going to have a large amount of cars that are being pushed out and uh with those cars that are going out, Tesla is going to be taking an anticipated loss on each and every one of those vehicles. Um, it's all kind of weird financial mumbo-jumbo to me, so whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, 
you know, I, I, I don't really have the power to say that it is any either way, but where Tesla's looking at it is that these are going to be guaranteed sales in their mind uh, to people like me, for example, who maybe are unwilling to buy the car and own it outright, especially with the high costs of these vehicles when you can break down, you know, these anticipated resale values on the car and hopefully have a much smaller payment for a short amount of time. Uh, the other good thing, at least in my mind, with leasing a brand new Tesla is that if any significant updates come out for the vehicle uh, later on down the road, which is 99% going to be the case on a Tesla, you're trading it in after three years, whether you pay for the upgrades or not, and uh, you can get a brand new car right away. And Tesla, you know, once they get that car, it's up to them whether they add the autopilot features back in or digitally upgrade the battery, which is a thing they can do. Uh, and in the end, you know, those used Tesla models are going to be more readily available after the next couple of years. Uh, I Like I said, luxury car brands like Lexus and BMW and many others really depend on these uh, leased cars being turned back in uh, to have used cars on their lot. And, you know, used luxury vehicles tend to depreciate quite a bit, but Tesla has largely proven that that's not exactly the case. Uh, anytime you've gone on places like Auto Trader, Carvana, CarMax, anything like that. If you look up used Tesla uh, models, specifically the Tesla Model S, you tend to find that uh, resale values for these cars are quite high, uh, really significantly high, all things considered. Um, I think, what was it? Uh, what's his name from Hoovy's Garage? He was saying that the cheapest Tesla Model S he could find for sale here in the United States was still almost $40,000, and it wasn't even a particularly early unit car. Um, that was pretty impressive, at least to me. And in the end, you know, it has me questioning what the resale values on a Model 3 would be. You know, if, if the average cheap version of the car is $43,000 and you get what you perceive to be the better option. So let's just say it's $50,000. There's a pretty good chance after three years with leasing this car, it would still be worth thirty-five dollars or $40,000. And in the end, you know, if you're paying those lease prices and you don't do a huge down payment, you might end up getting a pretty decent deal on the vehicle. Now, again, that kind of depends on what you perceive to be a good deal on a car that you don't technically own. Uh, but at least with a Tesla in particular, this seems like a pretty decent way to get into this as an overall thing. And, you know, Tesla's really going to depend on this to keep moving units of the Model 3. A lot of the people that did their early pre-orders still haven't gotten their cars. Uh, a lot of people are still waiting for that $35,000 car. And again, I'll reiterate my conspiracy theory and what's going on with that. I think until the Chinese plant opens and until these uh, trade war tariffs with China get ended, I don't think we're going to see a $35,000 Tesla Model 3 until they have the ability to build it in China and ship it to the United States. Um, but yeah, I, I, in the meantime, you know, I think this might be a pretty good deal. And really in particular, you know, it kind of speaks to the weird way that EVs work overall with leasing. Uh, a lot of car companies really would prefer that you do lease an electric car at this point in time just because the transaction prices are quite high. Um, you know, you have a lot of depreciation on these cars and in the end, you know, you're not going to get super duper fleeced on the overall value of this vehicle because there's weird math that's involved with the tax breaks and so much else with it that it's kind of confusing. Um, 
I personally feel that, you know, if you're looking to buy a car to own for 10 years or more, and you're willing to make the jump into alternative fuel vehicles, I think buying an EV does make some level of sense. Um, but that's all to do with the fact that, you know, you're paying it off pretty quick, you get that big tax credit, so on and so forth. Ah, I don't know, it's a big mess. But used car purchases, returned EVs, that's a good investment, I think. And that's one that I think we're going to talk about here in the car whatever section. So hang on for just one moment after the beat, and we'll talk a little about the Chevy Spark EV. So last up in the car that's on my mind, car whatever, blah, blah, blah section, uh, as I just spoiled in the previous segment, I wanted to talk about the 2013 to 2016 Chevy Spark EV. Now, where I tend to park when I work out in Holland uh, for the day, I park uh, in a parking garage that has an EV charger near my vehicle, and I'm always surprised to see what's being charged up. Sometimes it's a Tesla, sometimes it's a Volt, Occasionally, there's a Cadillac ELR, uh, but yesterday, it was a Chevy Spark EV, and I found it particularly interesting because here in Michigan, uh, it was a car that was never officially sold by General Motors uh, at any point in time. Uh, out on the West Coast and in some parts of the East Coast, uh, the Spark EV was made available as a compliance vehicle in states where certain amounts of uh, electric vehicles needed to be sold to uh, regulate carbon emissions and all that other stuff. Basically states that follow the uh, CARB standards set by the state of California. Uh, the Spark EV, nevertheless, was a very interesting vehicle released at a very interesting time in the marketplace. Uh, as these vehicle emission standards were enacted and so many car companies were releasing these compliance cars, the Spark EV was really an interesting approach because it was the only pure electric vehicle being offered by GM at the time uh, that was basically built off this somewhat unloved city car that uh, Chevrolet had released uh, in a pretty short time frame. Uh, the Spark is a car that was made by uh, GM Daewoo in South Korea and exported to the U.S. Uh, to really drive down their overall, or excuse me, drive up their overall fuel economy numbers uh, for their entire portfolio of vehicles. Uh, the regular gasoline-powered cars were never particularly well-liked. Uh, quality was just okay, performance was fine, uh, they rode really uh, well and handled pretty okay, but everything else was just eh about the car. Uh, but when they added the electric powertrain to the car, People loved the way it drove. Uh, people loved the way that it had relatively consequence-free electric driving. And a lot of that has to do with the low weight of the vehicle. Um, it weighs just over, I think, 2,000 pounds, which is featherweight by most American car standards these days. Um, and with the small output battery that was in it, it was able to go pretty decent amounts of distance. I think it was somewhere between like 115 and 150 miles on a single charge. And because the batteries that fit into it were so small, you could charge it relatively quickly, especially on a DC fast charger. Uh, or excuse me, a level 2 DC whatever charger. Uh, so the initial models first released in 2013 uh, had a 21.3 lithium, or excuse me, a 21.3 kilowatt hour lithium ion battery made by A123. Later versions of the car, I think 2014 and up, had a 19 kilowatt hour battery that came from LG Chem, which I believe were made here in Holland, Michigan. Uh, really, you know, overall, 
a pretty well-made battery pack, and it was mated to the electric motor from the Chevrolet Volt. Now, that particular motor only put out 130 horsepower, but the torque rating was up above 300 pound-feet of torque. And in a car that only weighed 2,000-ish pounds, this thing could squirt through traffic unlike anything else. And Car and Driver, I remember saying that it was one of the most entertaining cars they had ever driven because it felt so fast compared to other things having all that torque available from zero RPM. Now, what was interesting about the car for me is that the car did include a lot of higher-end technology upgrades in the car. Um, it had a much better infotainment system, and I think it was one of the first cars from GM that had uh, Apple CarPlay and Android Auto compatibility available. Um, you know, heated seats. Uh, I think it even had a heated steering wheel. I don't remember if all that was standard, but overall, in the, the package for this car, you know, it was, I think, brand new. The base trim model was like $27,000, and once you took out the, G or the federal tax credit, local tax credits, and state tax credits and all that, you had a car that was, you know, ten dollars or $15,000 out the door that you never had to put gas into, you never had to sit at a gas station for, uh, and really became a super cheap way to run your car day to day. Now, where does it stand today? Well, because it was so cheap, because there were all those tax incentives on it, uh, because GM sold quite a few of them in those tax com or those uh, compliance states, uh, picking them up used, which here in 2019, those 2016 models are going to be hitting uh, dealership lots pretty quickly. Uh, they're cheap as chips at this point. Uh, just a quick search on the car service Carvana. Uh, they, I believe, transport vehicles basically for free to anywhere in the United States, but they don't negotiate on the price of the car. Uh, you can get a used like 2015 or 2016 uh, Spark EV with less than 30,000 miles on it for like 10 or 11 grand. Uh, if you wanted a cheap electric car and you're willing to deal with the fact that it is a city car sized vehicle, it's not the worst way to go. I really have to say that I think that is a pretty good deal. Um, if you're driving short amounts of distance and you have access to a charger on a somewhat regular basis, I don't think it's a bad option for you, all things considered. Now, you might have to break down what kind of charge costs you would have, what kind of insurance costs would be, because I would imagine insurance costs on this car wouldn't be very cheap. Um, but in the end, you know, it all balances out with the fact that you're doing much better for the environment. Uh, you don't have to pay for gasoline. You know, whether it works for you, you'll have to check it out yourself. But really take a look. If you know, if you're out on the West Coast, you're out on the East Coast, uh, where these things are a little more uh, plentiful, it's definitely worth a look. I just want to know where this guy got this car. I mean, he had a Carvana license plate on the back, so he probably got it shipped here. Um, but it's really surprising to me that that was a thing that I saw here on the lakeshore in Michigan. It was really special. So keep your eye out for him. And if you're interested in buying a cheap car, not a bad way to go. All right, guys, that just about wraps up this episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Brad Eiseldyke, and you can follow me on Twitter at YSSMAN.com. 
anchor.fm or you can uh, follow along with us at anchor.fm at anchor.fm slash Y-S-S-M-A-N. Uh, we do this podcast early in the week. We do it later in the week. So make sure you hit that subscribe button to find out when a new episode has been released. Uh, I appreciate everybody who's done so. If you like what you hear, share it with your friends. Give us a rating. It really helps us out quite a bit. Uh, and other things to check out as we enter the weekend. If you've got some time, uh, head on over to YouTube and check out the TFL truck episode that talks about fuel economy ratings, specifically rating, uh, rating pickup trucks. Uh, they compared the fuel economy of a Ram Rebel 1500 with the uh, e-torque Hemi and the Chevrolet Silverado with the 2.7 liter turbocharged inline four with some really crazy results on both. Uh, it was kind of in response to a car and driver article uh, that said they got horrible fuel economy with that Chevy Silverado and they wanted to see if they could redeem some results that they got with their Ram Rebel. Uh, the Ram got some really willy-nilly results overall which they addressed in two separate videos. The Silverado on the other hand did way better than what I would have thought and has some really interesting uh, repercussions when it comes to stories like what car and driver runs so you know if you've got a half hour 45 minutes check out those two episodes it's really crazy to hear how the epa and how car companies actually rate their vehicles uh it's something i had no idea about and it's definitely worth learning about uh, maybe we'll have to cover that in a later episode on down the line uh, in other news, guys, it really does feel like spring is here. Um, so if you're in a place where the sunshine is out and shining and things are melting, I hope you get out there and enjoy it. I know I got some vitamin D today and it felt great. Uh, but with all that in mind, guys, uh, we'll have a new episode of the show probably on Monday or Tuesday next week and the big show again on Friday. So until then, I hope you have a safe and wonderful weekend and we will see you on the next episode of the Salvage Title Podcast. <laughs>